when Peter had the image of that great sheet descending before him, he was perplexed. Frequently, what we hear in the Bible is perplexing, and I find myself wondering what precisely was going on. What was the dynamic happening that the scriptures are recording? We find ourselves perplexed. One of the perplexities is that uh, Jesus, so often when he's encountering the people who become his disciples, he speaks to them and he says, come and follow me. And it's as if instantaneously they drop everything. They leave their nets behind them. That is, they leave their occupations. They get up and they go with Jesus. Now, I try and follow Jesus, but if he were to appear today, I I still find myself astonished how many of us genuinely would be able to perceive, to see what's going on if he said to us, come and follow me. Would we be able to drop everything and go? It's astonishing. What were people experiencing? What about Jesus was so magnetic that they felt compelled to go? Was it something that they saw in him? Was it something in the quality of his voice? Or was there something deeper beyond words, beyond sight, something that they intuited with their whole selves that made them want to follow Jesus? What made him so magnetic? Throughout the centuries, Christians, in trying to understand Jesus, have looked back to the Hebrew Scriptures, trying to look for the the precedents, the the prefigurements, the prophecies that, that spoke of the coming Christ. And that first passage that we heard of the suffering servant, it's one of the passages that is most... Uh, uh, most regarded as, as prefiguring Christ. It says this, nothing in his appearance, there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. Now, of course, we have no photographs of Jesus, but uh, the Gospels, uh, they draw our attention to very specific points in Jesus' life. And they, they don't bother to make mention of wh- how he appeared physically. So it doesn't seem that Jesus exuded a kind of visual magnetism. What other kind of, of beauty, what kind of other allurement might Jesus have been exercising? Here, Peter's vision might be of help to us. When he sees that large sheet descending from heaven, on it there is a, a, a great profusion of creatures, uh, four-leggeds and, and reptiles and birds. Now, Peter observes a distinction, a scripturally based distinction, a long-observed and faithful distinction between those animals that may be eaten and those that may, be, may not be eaten, those that are clean and those that are unclean, for the koshering laws are a profound means to participate in God's holiness. And so the words that were spoken in this vision were particularly surprising, for he hears what God has called clean, you must not call profane. It appears that this is the way of God, to always draw the circle larger, to include 
rather than exclude. And that was the way of Jesus. Those whom others would exclude, sex workers, those who extorted tax money for their own gain, people who are collaborators, the sick and the lepers Jesus would include. To put it crassly, his moral beauty was so great as to include what others saw as ugly or unwanted or unworthy. His beauty was so great to encompass all. The eyes of the heart can discern what is worthy beyond outward appearances. The divine, the divine beholds and includes. And Jesus saw that of God in everyone. That kind of sight is available to you. That kind of sight is available to me. That kind of sight is available to us all. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins looked into the larger natural world and saw with this kind of vision in a poem called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. And read just a brief bit of it. He uses the term men to mean people. Hopkins says, I say more. The just man justices. Lovely to hear that made into a verb. The just man justices. Keeps grace. That keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye. What in God's eye he or she is. Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. It's like Peter's vision. Can we imagine our own lives? Can we imagine our own lives, the entirety of our lives, the past, our present? our present and our future? Can we imagine the, the, the entirety of our lives spread out something like Peter's sheet? That our lives are gifts, the entirety of them. And dare we even imagine that those parts of our lives about which we may hold some guilt or some shame or we're not so proud of or those parts that we wish maybe were not there may be particularly there. God's grace is present. One of my favorite teachers is a, a, a living priest. He is a Franciscan. That is, he follows in the way of St. Francis, who followed in the way of Jesus. His name is Father Richard Rohr, and I would commend his writings to you. This brief uh, part that I'm speaking here comes particularly from his book called Falling Upwards. A striking image. We normally think about falling down. Falling upwards. And the subtitle is A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. What Rohr suggests is that the way of Christ is to transcend and include. For God is not offended by difference, he says, to transcend and include. He puts it this way, classically throughout the world in a variety of spiritual traditions, the spiritual journey begins as elitist and ends up egalitarian. Always, he says, 
we may have had the experience of falling in love with God. Particularly holy people have uh, often the sense of falling in love with God and the, 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 the purity of heart having such a clear vision of seeking God, of ascending to God, that all else must be excluded. And yet when God loves in us, we don't need to ascend. Christ has, if you will, descended. God has become human, entered our human condition so utterly and fully, fully identified with us. We need not ascend. God's love has descended to us. And so if God does not exclude, neither need we. The first half of life, the first half of life is necessarily occupied with capacity building, skill building, education, learning, and then forming our lives. Hinduism names this first half of life as uh, uh, including both being a student and then being a home builder, home tender. But in the second half of life, in the second half of life, We transcend whatever we've built in the first half. Sometimes we come to a point in our lives where the lives that we have so carefully cultivated, cultivated, cared for, sometimes it just comes to a screeching halt. Not because we chose it, Sometimes a divorce happens. Not what we wanted, but it happens. Sometimes an illness happens that stops us in our tracks. Sometimes we're laid off. Sometimes we face a failure in our work, and the way that we've done things just no longer works anymore. The navigational system, the, 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 the GPS system on our lives uh, stops working. We turn and wonder what's next. I don't happen to have one of those devices, those GPS devices, uh, but I think some of them in the cars, uh, if, you, if you take a, a turn you had not anticipated, it pauses and says something like, recalculating. Sometimes our capacity to recalculate is exceeded by the events of our lives. And especially then, especially there, our need for God becomes so clear. And what our former selves, our carefully cultivated selves, would see as a disaster ends up being an enormous grace. For the grace of God finds us anew and as never before. Sometimes, especially there, in those unexpected turns, the eyes of our heart open and we awaken. Sometimes we have even been discarded by others in our earlier lives, but it does not mean that we need to discard any part of our lives in that great sheet of our lives, that great spread of our lives. We can rather transcend it, own it, all of our lives, transcend it and own it and include it fully. In fact, a faithful life, fully matured, is able to look, even with eyes of mercy, at those disowned parts 
and include them. In fact, a fully mature faith is not fully mature unless it can transcend and include even those difficult experiences by God's grace. We may own the whole of our lives fully in the sight and the mercy of God, an owned life. Now, one of the puzzling things that Jesus says uh, in, in Matthew, he says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would imagine that some of you may share my tendencies of being closet or not so closet perfectionists. <laughs> So this passage can be pernicious for us. Lord, I really want to do what you have asked. Oh, dear God, I want to be perfect. To make this a little bit less religious, but perhaps quite living, some of us grew up in families where addiction was a profound struggle and frequently unacknowledged. And many times for children who grew up in a situation like that, there is this demand. There is no room to be a problem. We must be perfect because there's so much that's chaos. And so we become bound in life. So is there perhaps a grace in what Jesus says about be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect? The word behind perfect, the Greek behind perfect is telos which means something like aim or direction and denotes the sense of being whole or complete. So if we're aiming not so much to do everything right, because we have to, but if there's a gentler sense instead of being whole or complete by being able to own the whole of our lives, offer the whole of our lives, see the whole of our lives within the love and mercy and grace of God. It's a very different image of what perfection is to own our lives and to live them fully within the grace and the mercy of God. For wholeness includes rather than excludes. A whole person can welcome even imperfection ourselves and others and forgive what falls short. It's a slow, slow process, this wholeness. At least it is for me. And yet Jesus, looking at Jesus, Jesus so fully identified with the lowliness of human beings. And Jesus preferred company that ended up uh, offending spiritual elitists. We earlier used the term magnetism to try and understand Jesus. Magnets, though, curiously have two poles. They can both attract and repel. Jesus, in the greatness of his love, in his, the, the breadth of his inclusivity, offended some, repelled some. And so may we, if we love with the all-embracing kind of love, or even start to move towards that kind of love. Jesus so fully identified with the human condition that he could love genuinely even enemies. I know I am less 
large-hearted than Jesus. So I pray that God's mercy may increasingly dwell in me, however long it takes. Paul writes in Galatians, praise in Galatians, I live now, not I. I love this, this juxtaposition here. I live now, not I. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. And so that long, slow work of mercy is happening in me. I'd like to offer an image for a moment. I hope this carries. I hope this speaks. Imagine, if you will, uh, a figure eight. Loops like this. So hold on to the figure eight. If the next part of what I say is unclear, just come back and think figure eight. The image that I'm about to offer is an image of a figure that has, it's like a figure eight, and it has two centers. And the term is lemniscate. It's the big vocabulary word for the day. Lemniscate, L-E-M-N-I. S-C-A-T-E. Imagine if you had a long strip of paper, a long sheet of paper, and you formed a circle with it, so you now have a ring. But then you held one end, took the other end, and turned it and attached it again. You've got a lemniscape, figure eight loop. And wherever you start on it, if you run along the plane, it's now a never-ending plane. It loops on itself endlessly. Two centers. So imagine... Having Christ as our center in us. Having Christ as our center in us, that's one half of the figure eight. The other half is our life in the world. And they're inextricably linked. What happens in our spiritual lives inside ends up influencing our lives outside. And what happens in our life in the world ends up returning and coming into us. And so having Christ as our center is utterly important. Having Christ as our center links inextricably with having justice being our passion in the world. Both poles are necessary. Neither can be collapsed on the other. They mutually feed one another. Having Christ our center continues to inspire, to fill us, to empower us in order to be in the world seeking justice. And as we're in the world seeking justice and face the struggles of that, brings us back to Christ. We live in a place and we live in a time filled with many visions of what justice is. We live in a town, larger town here, that is easily filled with passion for justice in ways that are sometimes <sighs> depleting to say the least. So as people of faith, it's so important that as we're in the world, we keep returning to Christ, our center, to empower us, to fill us. Unless our visions of justice come to the fore, we need to be renewed once and again and again and again so that it's Christ's work that we're doing in the world. Christ's beauty was likely not in the physical domain at all, but in the moral as he moved into the world, this capacity to include in ever wider circles, especially include what is not by many considered attractive at all. 
Now, we might say in, my, in our own lives that we've done no great work of moral beauty. We can see no particular heroism in ourselves. In fact, we might think of ourselves as rather ordinary. But perhaps there's a way of understanding beauty incrementally. There is a man whose name, I hope I'm pronouncing it somewhere close to correctly, is named, he is named Jadav Payang. Jadav Payang. He is from India. And when he was 16, back in 1979, when he was 16, he saw a sandbar in the river uh, near his house, a sandbar that had been denuded. There was no foliage, foliage on it at all. And what he saw that day, when he was 16, it broke his heart. There were a number of snakes that had somehow washed up on that sandbar and had perished. 16. 1979. So what he started doing from that day was planting a tree. First 20 bamboo trees. And then every day since, since 1979, as a teenager, every day since he has gone to that same region and planted a tree. Planted a tree. Planted a tree. That park, that forest now is larger than Central Park. It houses seasonally 115 elephants and rhinoceroses and a great profusion of birds. Remember that vision of Peter, that great spread of animals? We may think that our lives are ordinary. And yet the great incremental work of beauty may be ours as when a parent baptizes a child as when parents baptize a child and then raise that child faithfully, as when a congregation says baptismal promises again and again to families and children and then is faithful to raise those children and support the family. There's a Presbyterian pastor. His name is Eugene Peterson. He used to pastor in our area. He has a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Take it to me in the same direction of Jesus. A long obedience in the same direction. So perhaps we see moral beauty in a life lived faithfully across 100 years. Moral beauty can be incremental. Thanks be to God. And it may be so humble, like when we accompany a loved one through the descent of dementia and into death. That long faithfulness, there is great beauty in that. For anyone who tends someone or something that would otherwise not be cared for, might even be deserted like that sandbar. Christ's moral beauty, whether in the grandeur of justice-seeking or in the humility of long, patient tending, Christ's moral beauty is is ours to behold and to live. So may it be in us. Thanks be to God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.